0: are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com.
1: beautiful today. God love all y'all. So the teaching text today comes from 1 Chronicles 25 and 1 Corinthians 14. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun for the ministry of prophecy, accompanied by harps, lairs, and cymbals. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. This is the word of the law. Thanks be to God. So over the last
0: week, I have heard story after story after story of breakthrough moments of confession that happened in this room last week. And so I just want to kind of mark a moment and speak into the life of this community briefly as we begin. Uh, The challenge is not to confess. It's to keep on confessing. It's to make sure that confession is not an inspired moment, but is a regular way of life that we share together. So maybe you were in this room last week and you shared something really vulnerable before God in community, and I think that when a a moment of breakthrough like that happens, one of the enemy's strategies is often to come behind that and to say, you know, if you confess once, that makes you look noble or real or authentic, but if you keep on confessing, then maybe you've got a problem. And that's a lie. That's a lie. Confession is actually the way to victory in the story we are in. As we keep on confessing, we sort of learn the steps of this dance called grace and we can learn to practice that regularly as a community, that is victory. Even if it feels like you're standing in the same place, it's actually by confession that we move toward victory. So I just wanna speak into that in this community and say if you're in here and you've like, stumbled and fallen in exactly the same way as you confessed last week, you're invited to come and confess again, and then again, and then again, because that's one of the things that it means to be the family of God together. None of that has anything to do with the text that Lamont just read us. So, let me get to that bit. Um, Meg Yahashi joined our staff just a couple of years ago under this job title, Interim Children's Ministry Coordinator, which is code for, we need someone to take care of the children, but we don't have any money for it. Will you do it? She agreed. Um, so. Six months into that, she was doing such a phenomenal job that we offered her a permanent part-time position in this church. She said to me, I'd really like to think it over. Later she told me, I definitely don't want to do it, but I'm not sure how to let you down easy in this moment, so I need to think over how to let you down gently later. That's what was actually going through her head. So she prayed, and as she prayed, she just began to feel this pull from God to actually quit her full-time job in the industry that she'd come to the city to work in with the potential of upward mobility so that she could take a part-time position at a new nonprofit that exists solely on the local donations of the people that take part in it. Now, you know as well as I do that... The best you can do in Brooklyn on a full time decent salary is like an apartment with asbestos poisoning and seven cats. <laughs> a part time position at a local nonprofit it made no sense whatsoever, but just began to feel this pull from God saying, This is where I'm leading you. Just come and follow me, and I'll take care of the rest. So fast forward a couple weeks into that prayer, we are in this room together on a Saturday morning for a prayer meeting. A friend of mine, Gavin, happens to be in town. He's never met Magumi before in his life. And during the prayer meeting, he stops and he says to her, hey, you, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I don't know your name, but I've just had a picture that I think is for you. It's, it's of an abacus. And immediately, I start scrolling through my head and all the characters in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who's abacus, who's abacus, who's abacus? Who's abacus? <laughs> And then I, I realized it's, it's none of those. It's actually this. This is an abacus. It's the toy from the doctor's office waiting room that no one plays with. But it's actually for arithmetic. It's for children to learn to count. And so he says, I have a picture of an abacus, but all of the, the pieces are moved to one side. And I think that you're at a moment in your life where you're weighing a decision, and all of the earthly human wisdom is like, definitely stay here. But God's saying, no, choose the one with no pieces on it that's where I'm calling you, and I'll take care of the rest. Does that make any sense to you at all?" And just with tears streaming down her face, she says, yes, and at that moment, I slid the job description. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding about the last part. So how did Megumi end up working here? Well, she is building her life on something that she thinks God said to her through a complete stranger which could seem crazy, right? But to be fair, I'm not sure that's any crazier than building your life on the assumption that your current plan is going to lead you to flourishing in full satisfaction even though your seven plans before this one didn't. You've got decades worth of evidence to show you that you cannot fulfill your desires leading to your own flourishing, and yet we keep going back to that well. So scripture can explain Megumi's beliefs, but she cannot tell you her story without the active voice of God here and now in her very life, and the biblical word for that is prophecy. The very foundation of her life is biblical truth. It's the story of God throughout history, but the shape of her life is prophecy. A God who is just as active in the present as in history, a God who has never and never will stop speaking. So we're in this teaching series, a house of prayer in Brooklyn. And the whole thing's based on the prayer of the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 9. He says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter or David's tabernacle. I will repair its walls and restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be. Now, the backstory of this prayer is that David set up a house of prayer in the city center and led a 24-7 prayer meeting in Jerusalem that lasted for 33 years. That radical commitment to prayer then spilled out of that place of intimacy into the streets and looked like every expression of the kingdom of God coming to earth. So, this teaching series started really as a prayer. Oh, God, would you fulfill David's promise in our day? Would you raise up the tabernacle of David here in our city, in our time, among a community like this one? And that's why we opened a house of prayer on Grand Street, and it's why each Sunday we're looking back at the defining characteristics of that original house of prayer in Jerusalem to frame our expectation for what we should be experiencing here and now. So here's where we've been. Presence, hope, confession, and today we come to prophecy. And because that's not a word that we use a lot in our common vocabulary today, I wanna to try to give us some common ground. So here is my definition of the word prophecy. Prophecy is to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. It is to hear the voice of God and then give it away to an individual or to a group. So here's a map of where we're headed. Prophecy in the tabernacle, prophecy in the story, and the prophecy in the church. Let's go. So first, prophecy in the tabernacle. According to 1 Chronicles 25, David set up a house of prayer in Jerusalem, then immediately filled it with prophets, with people that were committed to listening to God on behalf of others. And prophecy defined David's tabernacle. It's safe to say that the bulk of the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, were written from within this like ramshackle prayer tent. So many of these psalms are prophetic, meaning they are promises about Jesus a long time before Jesus. So the psalms, they describe Jesus' appearance, his character, his mission. They even go into detail about his death and resurrection more than a thousand years before he was born. See, the culture of prophecy was so alive among ordinary people in this ordinary place that they were uncovering the deepest mysteries of God a couple thousand years ahead of schedule accidentally, just in the place of prayer. And then when Jesus showed up, he quoted one book of the Bible more than any other to explain who he was and the mission that he had come to accomplish. What book do you think that was? The Psalms. Jesus used the Psalms as the playbook for explaining his identity and mission when he was on the earth. It's as if Jesus is reaching back to the prayers from this tabernacle to say, this is who I am. I'm the one that's been promised since the days of David. So the tabernacle was a place where the voice of God seemed a little bit louder, a little bit clearer, a place where God spoke to common people face-to-face as friends, a place of prophecy. But... I have to acknowledge that when you drop the P word in a 21st century American church like this one, the room immediately fractures into three different groups. So I just want to acknowledge you, welcome you, and be honest about the fact that you're here. First, there's some of us in the room tonight who have a longing for the gift of prophecy you hunger to know God in any and every way that he can be known. In fact, maybe the weirder the better. Bring it on. But it's possible to have the right desire without uh, a, a theological foundation to build that desire on. So I want to give you a biblical foundation for a longing for prophecy tonight. Then there's another group of people and you hear words like prophecy and it probably makes you more concerned or defensive than it does excited. And that could be for just unfamiliarity, maybe you grew up in a church tradition that de-emphasized passages like the ones we just read, or biblical themes like that of prophecy, and so this is just outside of the frame of your experience up to this point. Or maybe it's because of familiarity. Maybe it's because you have been steeped in a very toxic prophetic environment in the past, and you found it to be much more manipulative and, and, and inflict deep wounds than you did actually deliver freedom. And so the safest place for you to go is as far away from any environment like that as you possibly can get. And then finally, there's a third group in this room that has no idea what I'm talking about. And you're just like, listen, man, it seems like you think you're sort of stepping on controversial ground here. I'm just like, wow, this is a long intro. How long do we have? And that's probably the perfect starting place. So prophecy in the tabernacle. Now let me take you into prophecy in the story. There is no era of biblical history that does not have prophecy all over it. If you strip the scripture of the gift of prophecy, you end up with an untellable story. So I want to walk you through the scripture and show you that this is a theme woven all throughout and it is something to be desired, a gift to be given, not a threat to... um, uh, to repel or to be defensive of. So, first, let's begin where we always begin with the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's Genesis 1 1 and 2. So, the Hebrew word here used for spirit is the word ruach, which can be equally translated as spirit or as breath. So, another way to read the Spirit was hovering is to read God was breathing. And what happens when the breath of God meets the unformed substance uh, of matter? Creation comes to be. God speaks and all of a sudden you have land and sea and vegetation and animal life. Everything God creates, everything we experience came through the speaking voice of God. It was his Ruach, his breath. Lastly, God creates human beings, but something unique happens. He puts his spirit, again we have the word Ruach, into them. So God breathes life into the lungs of human beings, and human beings were set apart from creation in that we have the breath of God filling our very lungs. He fills us up with his Spirit. So people were always meant to be filled with the Spirit of God, and sin stole the divine breath from our lungs, so to speak. Then in the Old Testament, God selected certain people and communicated with them directly. Those people um, took the whispers of God from private and they spoke them aloud to the masses in public. They are called prophets, but they were the exception, not the rule. The Spirit is present, just as present as that creation, but the Spirit's sort of only making cameo appearances every once in a while to a handful of people, every generation or so. So the bad news is, that God's voice is rare and unpredictable. The good news is, is that God keeps speaking. And that's basically the premise of the whole Old Testament. God spoke creation into being and he does not go silent after that. The way of redemption is the exact same as the way of creation. It is the speaking voice of God. Skip back to Jesus and the apostle John describes Jesus' arrival this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is described as a living prophecy. The word of God, his speaking voice became a person and then walked around here among us. And then finally the church was founded on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given just as Jesus had promised. And what immediately happens after the spirit fills the lungs of people in Acts chapter two, they begin to speak. They begin to speak out in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. All Christians start acting like prophets all of a sudden. Peter stands up to explain what is going on, this phenomenon that everyone's seeing, and he quotes the prophet Joel and says, Joel said this would happen. He said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So God's promise is, there's a day coming when my spirit, my ruach, my breath, won't just be for cameo appearances for a special few, but will be the constant breath in the lungs of all of my people again, just as it was always meant to be. And that promise is for children and seniors, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, educated and illiterate, everyone. That's the biblical story. And prophecy is not just an optional subpoint to that story, it is the very heart of that story. Abraham, Moses, David, Esther, Deborah, Mary, John, Peter, Paul, all of them, have beliefs you can explain simply with the Bible, but the shape of their lives is prophecy. They've got stories you can explain only with the God who is living and active and present and speaking into their very uh, individual lives. So if the Bible is your guidebook for a relationship to God, your expectation should be that God is speaking to you, not just to a couple special individuals with special gifts, but to you. So the question isn't, does God speak to me? Belief in the Bible necessitates belief that God speaks to me. The question of the prophetic is, are you listening? So here we are. Prophecy in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, which is the second passage of our teaching text, is the biblical manifesto on the gift of prophecy. So how do we drag this aspect of David's tabernacle into this modern-day house of prayer here and now? Well, the church at Corinth has done the bulk of the heavy lifting for us already, so let's just learn everything we can from their experience. So that takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll start with this. Here's the first thing we can learn from the church at Corinth, is that prophecy is the normal experience of church life. See, here's an entire chapter of the Bible dedicated just to how the prophetic ministry was meant to be used when the church gathered together. So the assumption behind the whole chapter is this. When God's people gather, God is speaking. The Bible just assumes that the prophetic is active within the church. In fact, the New Testament church receives written instruction directly related to the use of the gift of prophecy in the letters to the Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, and Timothy, and in the epistles of Peter, Jude, and Revelation. It is all over the place in the Bible. This is the biblical expectation. Dallas Willard, who is as widely respected as any scholar across traditions in the modern church, says this. If we look at the advice on how the meetings of the church were supposed to proceed, as given in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that they assumed that numerous people in the congregation were going to have some kind of communication from God, which they would be sharing with others in the group. In other words, if it's the church you're in, expect prophecy. Now, one thing that keeps us from actually practicing the prophetic freely when we do gather together like this as as the church is that we assume that the experience of the prophetic is supposed to feel quite mystical, right? It sounds like a really mystical concept. It's not a word we're just throwing around. So surely to receive a prophetic word feels like being possessed by an angel. And then I just open my mouth and can't stop speaking or something like that. But it's actually so much more ordinary than that. See, most people miss the voice of God not because it's too strange but because it's too familiar. It's so much more ordinary than that. There's this incredible scene in the play Saint Joan where Joan of Arc insists that she hears the voice of God. And this other character who's playing a skeptic says, no, 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 you don't. That's just your imagination. And she says, of course it is. That's how God speaks to me, which is a fantastic retort. One saint described God's voice as the touch of a feather on your skin, meaning it's just light enough that you can ignore it if you'd like, but it's just heavy enough that you can stop and pay attention and respond to it if you want to. See, most people miss the voice of God, not because it's too mystical, but because it's too familiar. And if I had to describe to you what it feels like to receive something prophetic, to hear God's voice, it would be like this. It is a thought that appears in my imagination, just like any other thought, only it feels as if it comes from without, from the outside, rather than from within, from inside of me. It's a a thought in my imagination as normal as any other thought, but the origin point of that thought feels uh, slightly unfamiliar. So the second thing we can learn from the church at Corinth is this, that prophecy invites intimacy. So can you humor me for just a second here? Everyone just close your eyes, just for a second. Some of you are not closing your eyes, just a radical distrust. It'll be about three seconds. Okay, here's the experiment. Who is speaking right now? Open your eyes. Who was that? Whose voice did you hear? Mine? How did you know that? Your eyes were closed. How did you know it was me speaking? You know my voice. You know my voice. Which is interesting because most of you have been walking with God longer than you've been attending this church, right? So if you know my voice, then you should know the voice of God. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now I said before, the question isn't, is God speaking? The question is, are you listening? And that is absolutely true. But of course, for anyone that's actually ever tried to hear the voice of God, it's not quite that simple, is it? because God tends to make himself constantly available, but never entirely obvious. And so hearing the voice of God takes practice. It takes this uncomfortable kind of risking that we call obedience. How do we learn the shepherd's voice? We follow him. We ask God to speak to us, and then we act in obedience only half sure at best that it's God we heard in the first place. That's how we learn to discern God's voice from our own imaginations. That's how we learn what it is to be his sheep and to follow him as the shepherd. And that means to step into the prophetic ministry, you have to be comfortable with mistakes being made. Uh, A good friend of mine, Simon, who's one of the elders of this church, uh, got on the metro north a couple of years ago. And he sat down right across from this woman, and he immediately felt like God had given him a word for her. And it was related to the industry that she works in and to her vocation. And so he thought, you know what? I'm going to be bold enough to share it. However, I am going to wait until just before my stop on this train, just in case it freaks her out. He had a two-hour train ride ahead of him. And it just, like... Kept being so heavy on him that he felt he was meant to share it. And so while they're still parked in Grand Central before they even leave, he leans over to her and he's like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I feel like God's speaking to me on your behalf right now. Uh, I think I might have a word of prophecy for you. It would be okay if I share that with you. And she's like, ah, uh, sure. And so he, he shares the word. He comes to the end of it and he says, does that resonate at all? And she says, No. I don't even work in that industry. He's like, okay, it was so nice to meet you. (laughs) He's back into his seat. Now that, that is what learning the shepherd's voice is like because the only way to learn is by experience. There is no formula to this. There's only familiarity and that means that failure is part of learning his voice. So we've got to learn to laugh at ourselves if we're ever going to grow in the prophetic. The only way I know to survive as a parent has been to learn to laugh at myself again. You just have to relearn to laugh at yourself because you try so hard to make this day go this way, and then this kid is melting down, and this one pooped, and you forgot the diapers, and this one just dumped a whole smoothie on your white shirt. And if you don't learn to laugh in those moments, you're going to be miserable as a family. Mature families know how to thrive together and how to fail together. They know how to inspire awe in one another and how to laugh with one another. And the same is true of mature churches, right? We know how to to be in awe together, but we also know how to laugh together. And we can tell stories like that one from the Metro North and laugh because it's God that we take seriously, not ourselves. See, we learn his voice by risks, so we've got to be willing to get it wrong if we're ever going to get it right. And if you take risks on the voice of God, his voice will become more frequent and more familiar. And on the flip side, if you are not okay or open to appearing foolish from time to time, you're going to have a really hard time following Jesus. Lily Tomlin asks, why is it that when God speaks to us, we are said to be praying, but or I'm sorry, when we speak to God, we're said to be praying, but when God speaks to us, we're said to be schizophrenic. It's because the only way to learn God's voice is to take the risk of appearing foolish. But which is riskier, really? Obedience that might get it wrong, or lowering the ceiling of my comfort zone down on top of my expectations for God? I would argue that the latter is actually the greater risk. And Morton Hunt discovered that babies born deaf make just as much noise. They're just as talkative as babies born with perfect hearing. But over time, they grow quieter and quieter because all they hear is the internal monologue of their own voices, nothing from the outside. The same principle holds true when it comes to intimacy with God. You will quickly lose enthusiasm for prayer if all you ever do is list requests. If your interaction with God is nothing but a monologue, then your voice is going to get quieter and quieter and less frequent over time. But on the flip side, if you learn what it is to hear the voice of God and your prayer becomes a conversation, then intimacy with God is like a zero-entry pool. It's like, I'm only ankle-deep now, but I'm going to be snorkeling in the deep end before you know it. See, in the Bible, God occasionally speaks out audibly, this is my son whom I love. But his preferred method of communication, his much more frequent method is a still small voice, whispering just in the internal mind of an individual. And why is that? Because of intimacy. See, God will always sacrifice effectiveness for intimacy. He will always move a little bit slower if it means that he gets to move with you. He will always slow down the redemption plan if he can pass it through your hands or through your voice first. So prophecy is not an invitation to become like a traveling seer that only ever wears 100% hemp. Prophecy is an invitation to come deeper and deeper into the waters until you're swimming in intimacy with God. Third, we learn this from the Corinthians that prophecy releases power. So here's the biblical result of a church that is active and healthy in the gift of prophecy. But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone else is prophesying, they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So prophecy is the mystery of God made visible for everyone to see. Prophecy is about mission. It's for the unbeliever. It it provokes the sense of holy jealousy. The way that you strengthen one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, it's familiar but but it's distant, it's like it's from another world. See, prophecy makes us accidental missionaries. If evangelism terrifies you, then try prophecy. Because prophets get accidentally the same fruit that evangelists get purposefully. A prophet gets the same fruit this way. It's just like, I just thought I just had a word for my best friend here, and it seems like some of the power of God might have accidentally spilled onto the skeptic in the back row. Whoops. That is the biblical explanation for the gift of prophecy in the church. And then finally, we learn this, that prophecy starts with eager desire. These are the very first words of 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. We should long that God would restore communication with us in the most intimate way. You and I should eagerly desire to be on the receiving end of a prophetic word for another person in this community. That's the biblical teaching. And I find that direct command interesting because most of us don't. Most of us don't have an eager desire for the gift of prophecy. In the modern church, there's an eager desire for better teaching. Right? We eagerly desire the gift of teaching to thrive in the church, but prophecy more than I could take it or leave it category. And that is based on this tragic modern misconception that my words, Tyler's words, are the most important ones that will be said in this gathered assembly tonight. And that's just not the way God sees it. God is not obsessed with better and better sermons about himself. God is obsessed with passing your redemption through your lungs. And so he hides a word of healing for you in the mouth of you. This is the dream of God, is a family radically dependent on one another and yet empowered by the resources of heaven. David did not hire teachers for the tabernacle. He hired prophets. And that's because translators are good. But what if we all just learned the language? That was the mission of David. Teaching is God using a human voice to tell someone about his character. Prophecy is God using a human voice to show someone his character. David Fritsch writes, the primary role of the prophetic anointing is to reveal God to the human heart. Meaning it's one thing to be taught that God loves you, but it's another thing entirely for a relative stranger to say something to you that shows that God was with you in that moment when you desperately needed him and were crying out for him. That shows you the love of God. It's one thing to be taught that God forgives you. It's another thing entirely to receive a prophetic word that undresses you of your unique brand of guilt. That shows you the forgiveness of God. So prophecy takes teaching and then makes it personally. It doesn't explain God. It forces revelations about God that are stuck in our minds down into our hearts so that we can live them out in our bones. That's why prophecy is always about Jesus. That's why Old Testament prophecy is all about Jesus, and New Testament prophecy is all about Jesus, and prophecy in the church today is all about Jesus, because it takes ideas about the character of Jesus and then reveals them in a personal enough way that we can actually receive them fully. The church is not longing for better teaching. We need prophets. We need super ordinary people to start believing in a God loving enough to speak to them. To eagerly desire that his voice would be restored to their lungs. That's the biblical teaching on prophecy. And everything I've said to you is generally agreed upon across every tradition and every era of Christian history. However, there are denominations and traditions who would say, yes, that absolutely is the biblical story, that absolutely is the biblical teaching, that absolutely is the biblical instruction, but that part of the Bible does not apply to us today. And these traditions live generally underneath the banner of cessationists. Cessationists believe that the voice of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the New Testament has ceased in the church today. That God gave the Spirit as an extra power boost to get the early church off the ground, but now the biblical canon has been closed with the ending of the book of Revelation, and the Spirit has stopped speaking prophetically. So I just want to step aside, slow the momentum here for just a moment, and respond to this. Because as your pastor, some of you have heard this teaching or will hear this teaching, and just as your pastor, I want to offer you a response. I grew up attending a cessationist church, I was educated in a cessationist teaching at a cessationist biblical institution, and I believe the theology that God gave his spirit as a power search for the early church that we no longer need or have access to in the church today is so, so flawed. And I want to give you a few reasons for that. I'll give you an experiential, a philosophical, and a biblical reason. So I want to start with the weakest, and that's an experiential reason. If I were to say that God no longer speaks to us today as he spoke in the New Testament, then I would have to deny a ton of my own personal experience. Because just like Megumi, I can tell you everything that I believe just based on the pages of scripture, but I can't tell you my story without the prophetic. So to deny a God who speaks today in a living, active way would also be to deny a whole lot of my own story and my own experience. But that's wildly subjective, so we need more than that. So I'll give you a philosophical reason. God's entire motive is relationship. That's his whole end game, is to be in unbroken relationship with you. And if I went home tonight and I told my wife, listen, babe, I'm never going to speak to you again. However, I have assembled a leather-bound book filled with facts about me that I'd like you to study morning by morning for the remainder of your life so that you can stay close to me. She would slap me across the face, right? Because relationship does not work in any context without direct communication from the two parties in the relationship. God is constantly speaking in the biblical story and it makes no sense that a God so insistent on speaking who ties creation and redemption to his speaking voice would decide somewhere near the end of the first century, whoo, what a wild ride. Sermons, mediocre songwriting, and typically awkward small groups should take it from here. It just makes no sense. So let me finally give you a biblical reason and this is by far the most important reason. 1 Corinthians 13, just one chapter back from what we've been reading, is the key passage for the cessationist argument. So in fairness, let me read it to you. I'm going to begin in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Hmm. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Let's keep on reading Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So prophecy will one day cease. That is the biblical teaching. When will it cease? When completeness comes. So the question is, what is completeness, and when is it coming? And the cessationist answer to that question is that completeness is the close of the biblical canon, which happened somewhere in the fourth century, to which I would respond, really? I mean, do you really think that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said completeness is a particularly successful council meeting to nail down the final edit of which scrolls make an end of this thing? No, if we keep reading in this very chapter, it eventually gets to this in verse 12. For now we see only in reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. So completeness comes when we see him face to face. It's when Christ returns. When will prophecy cease? When we're face to face with Jesus. When we no longer need prophecy because the direct line of communication has been restored. We're not there yet. And so we still live in a time of prophecy. And often in my experience, it is the people that have felt most in love with Jesus but most disjointed from the church those people that are so deeply in love with Jesus but just feel like a square peg in a round hole of the American church who discover that God has gifted them prophetically but that gift has just been stifled by this moment in church history. And so for some, discovering the prophetic will be discovering their place in the family. And for others, discovering the prophetic will be discovering family members that we thought we were okay without but now we can't imagine life together without. In my humble and honest opinion, a theology that says that God does not speak in power through his spirit anymore is a belief that is constructed not on biblical teaching, but to justify a lack of experience. I've never experienced it, so God must not be into it anymore. But whenever we come to that gap between the biblical story and our current experience, it's never an invitation for justification. It's always an invitation in, an invitation to more experience, an invitation deeper into the mystery of relationship with him, if we will follow the shepherd's voice. I was in a living room in London a couple of years ago. Every time I get to preach elsewhere, I always try to take a few people from this community with me. And so uh, Will and Alessandro were with me on this particular trip. And we're sitting in a living room. Will's with a group of friends of mine that are complete strangers to him. And, And they begin just to speak some prophetic words over him as we're praying. And he, I mean, they are landing. I mean, this guy's weeping like I did not know a grown man could until that evening. And it gets to the very end and someone just throws on this, this one last word and said, well, this is a bit of a cheesy image because I know you live in New York, man, but I just have this picture of the Statue of Liberty, but it's your face on the statue. And I'm hearing those old Ellis Island words of like, give us your sick, give us your poor, give us your tired, you, you know the lines. And, and I feel like God is saying that you're experiencing a level of freedom that, that some others around you aren't right now but just to keep on fighting for their freedom. And when they said that, I mean, Will just like, falls into the floor, because what the person sharing the word didn't know is that the day before coming on this trip, Will's wife, Alessandra, who uh, is Peruvian, was born in Peru, moved to the States when she was 11, is still fighting for full U.S. citizenship, had received some really difficult news from the immigration office in the form of this letter, and they had stood in the living room and just wept together over this letter that they had opened. And you know, it's one thing to be told that God's not only interested in the objective spiritual metrics of your life, he's interested in the details and your frustrations and the battles that you're fighting. It's quite another thing for a complete stranger to speak a picture that says, when you felt the heat of frustration rising in you with that open envelope in your hands, when you felt blanketed in defeat in the moment when you read those papers, Jesus was standing right there weeping alongside you, and he's standing right there to keep fighting the battle alongside you. That is the power of prophecy. A belief in your head goes to a revelation in your heart. What are we missing without prophecy in the church? I was at a a church retreat with a friend, and on the final morning of the retreat, after a whole weekend of activity and spiritual breakthrough, just before the buses roll out, a guy just stands up on the stage and grabs the microphone, and he said, there's somebody here who's got a suicide note on their desk in their bedroom at home. And you came on this church retreat as a last ditch effort, but you're leaving disappointed. And you have every intention of taking your own life before the end of the day today when you get back. If that resonates with someone here, will you just stick up your hand? And slowly but surely, this one guy raises his hand. And it turns out that he has a suicide note already written sitting on his desk at home. He's come on the retreat with this prayer, God, if you're real and if life is worth living, then will you meet me here? And he's leaving disappointed. He's planning to take his own life before dinner that night. And all of a the sudden, there's a whole family of people that are surrounding him saying, I think that God is longing to speak to you. I think this is the answer to the prayer that you prayed. And we as your family want to say life is worth living, but more importantly, your heavenly Father is saying, I see you, I love you, I'm responding to you, and you've got more days left. He's still alive today. A guy with a suicide note on his desk, still alive today. That's the power of the prophetic. What are we missing in the church without prophecy? One more. My friend Pete uh, was here to preach a a couple of years ago, and he got to the end of his sermon, and he said, look, this is gonna be quite weird because it has nothing to do with what I've just been preaching on, but I just cannot shake the sense that there's someone in the room today, and you're super self-conscious about your smile. There's like something with your teeth that you've been self-conscious about your whole life. And so it's like a cloud that looms over you all the time. You, You think about it every time you laugh. You think about it every time you smile. You're always trying to shield it. And I think God's pointing out that detail about who you are because God's trying to reach into your past and redeem something so that you can know his love in the present. And... He had preached in our sister church in Park Slope earlier that morning. And so he said, and look, I've got to be honest with you. I shared this exact same word in Park Slope. And no one responded to it. So it could just be the spicy burrito that I had just before bed last night. But maybe it's God, so why not just go for it? So I'm sharing it again. If that resonates with you, I just, I would love to pray with you today. And a guy comes straight down the center aisle of this church and grabs Pete by both shoulders and says, I was at church in Park Slope this morning. That's where I go to church. And you shared that word and it resonated so deeply with me and I did not have the guts to respond. And then I've just been going about my day with this nagging tug the whole day that I've missed an invitation from God. And so finally, I took the train all the way across the borough to come to church here, and I made a deal with God. I said, if he shares it again, this time I'll go up. And you shared it again! (laughs) And this guy, through something as small as his smile, just washed in the love of God. Now maybe you've heard that story before because it's one of my favorites. Honestly, I'm running it back. I've told it a few times, but <laughs> but here's the part I've never told. Is that Natasha came up for prayer on that very same Sunday during that same response time. And Natasha is a member of this church, but she's always one of my or she's also one of my very closest friends. And I don't know if this is the right way or the wrong way to do it, but as a pastor, I often, like, during a, a particularly moving response, I try to give those that I'm really close with personally just a little bit of space so I'm not smothering their experience with God. But on this particular day, I saw her come up, and I just felt such a strong call from the Spirit to go and pray for her. But there was quite a lot of people responding, she's on this side of the room, I'm on that side of the room. So I just climbed across the stage while the band was playing so I could get over here to her. and. And I began to pray for her, and she said, Tyler, I came here today to tell you that I'm done. I'm done with this church stuff. I'm out. I, I still love Jesus, but I'm not sure exactly what I believe about everything, and I just feel like I need some space to sort it all out, and I hope this doesn't really mess up our friendship, but I'm done. But if that's who God is, if he's powerful enough to speak all of this into existence, but he's also personal enough to speak to an individual person about something as small and as simple as insecurity with their smile. If God's really both that mighty and that loving, if that's who he is, then I actually do want to know him. And so she just began to pray that before God day after day. Six months later, she came up to me after a church service and said, I think God's finally going to meet me and it's going to be through prayer. A year after that, Natasha's leading the prayer council that, that gave birth to this whole house of prayer where so many of us are encountering God now. A, a house of prayer in Brooklyn is my deepest, most personal dream. And for God not only to bring that to be, but to do it through the redemption of one of my very best friends, to play such a critical role in seeing it come about, that's better than I would have dared to ask for. It's so much better than anything I even could have imagined. So I just want to trace that story back to the root. Just by being in the room while a prophetic word was given to someone else, God drew out Natasha's heart, restored her faith, and then selected her to, move a, or to lead a move of prayer that we are all benefiting from. That is the power of prophecy. What are we missing without prophecy in the church? So I'll land with this. Mike Pilavacci says, it's messy in the nursery, but neat and tidy in the graveyard. And Jesus had experience in both of those places. Jesus knew the nursery, let the little children come to me, but Jesus also knew the graveyard. In Matthew chapter eight, he was on a ship that came ashore to graveyard and he and his disciples got out of the boat. There was a man there who was both oppressed and mentally ill and Jesus healed him fully restored. There was a few farmers that that happened to see the whole thing go down, and this graveyard was just on the outskirts of a massive city. So they witnessed it, and they go back into the city, and they say, there's someone here with such power that suffering and pain falls to its knees and obeys him, but also so loving that he made his first stop to the most forgotten person in the most forgotten place. And then the very next line, right after that incredible healing, is this. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, him. They pleaded with him to leave their region. Why? What would cause you to beg a powerful, loving healer to keep his distance? Control. Control, because they preferred the safety of what was familiar and predictable to the risk of a living, speaking God. God is here. God is really among us, but he's messing up our way of doing things. And so they plead with Jesus to leave just to get back to the lifeless, but at least it was familiar. Confronted by the mess of the nursery, they say, nah, we'll just keep the graveyard. And we know how to live in the graveyard. We've got a well-ordered system, and God often comes in and makes a mess And so they said, we'll just take our graveyard, please. What are we missing without prophecy in the church? The mess. Because prophecy means extraordinary breakthrough, but it also means embarrassing and awkward moments of failure. It means people getting it wrong. And so the question prophecy confronts us with is what do you fear more? Mishandling the voice of God and a maturing community that's founded on love, or settling for life without the shepherd's voice. What are we missing without prophecy in the church? We're missing the mess. David's tabernacle was a heavenly mess and the spirit ordered the mess. The church at Corinth was a heavenly mess and the spirit ordered the mess. The modern church is well ordered, it's neat and tidy and we need the spirit to come in and bring the mess. Prophecy is one way for us to say, bring the mess of the nursery back into the church. Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. See, we have to start with wanting it. God promises to give the mess of the nursery to those who want it. So, do you want it? Look, you don't have to do this for me. I'm a grown up. I promise I'm going to sleep just fine tonight, either way. But I do want to give you a moment just to be honest between you and God and with your brothers and sisters here in this community and say, can you honestly say with your life, bring on the mess. I eagerly desire the gift of prophecy in my life and in this community, bring the nursery into the graveyard. So if you can say that truly with your heart, then I just wanna invite you right now just to stand, just as a way to say before God and one another, this is my longing and then I just wanna pray of you to join my prayer to your longing. So if you can say yeah bring on the mess bring the mess into the church we want the prophetic and we just stand right now Let me pray Father You love to give good gifts to your children, and how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? So here we are asking you, Lord. We eagerly desire your voice in and through our lives, and we trust that you give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.